Okay, everybody, thanks again for joining us here at the PLS 150 podcast. Uh, this is a special edition. Um, as we mentioned, um, we weren't able to get through some of the class notes for week eight. So I'm just going to try to round out some key points. I don't want to make this too long, maybe 15, 10 to 15 minutes uh, to um, offer some more detailed explanations um, based upon what's in the readings and more specifically the class notes. So this discussion here is going to be following the class notes for week eight if you wanted to follow along. Um, if you don't have that uh, available right in front of you, that's fine. You don't need to be looking at it. Um, it's not necessary. Okay, so um, one thing we didn't get to in the class was these kind of key points of interface uh, and intersection between politics and economics, um, particularly the way that the state, um, as a the central political actor in, in, in most instances in a kind of national economic context, and that is fiscal policy, monetary policy, and regulatory policy. And um, this is something, for instance, if you're really in, interested in these things like political economy and these issues, um, some of the topics that came up this week in the readings and in our class, um, issues of distribution and taxing and wealth and all of these things, um, I really encourage you to consider taking um, the class I teach, uh, PLS 480. Um, I think it's under a new code name, but you guys, I think, are under the old curriculum, so it would be PLS 480. And um, it's called States and Markets. So please um, think about that class if you, if you find this stuff of interest. We definitely dig into it, these things much deeper in that class. <clears throat> so fiscal policy for purposes today is just to think it's not that difficult, really. Um, it's the idea that every government um, taxes, takes money in, has revenue, and then spends right? Um, spends on various things from roads, bridges, military, um, healthcare, social services, education, right? And as you can see, this is a very political thing. I mean, it's economic in the sense that it involves money and finance and, and setting tax rates and deciding who should pay what, but it has huge political consequences um, right along the line, like how much money of your income will go to taxes and how much of that should be based upon the amount of money you make, right? Like if, you know, should wealthy people pay a lot more, a little more? Um, should the government use money that it's taxed from wealthy people to redistribute? So there's always this question of taking money from those who earn a lot or businesses who earn a lot of money and using taxes as a way to redistribute that in forms of education or other social programs or healthcare and, and um, unemployment assistance and so forth. That's a huge political dynamic in any society um, and throughout history, right? This is not something that's new. Taxing and spending and, and controversies over this is, is as old as politics itself, right? Um, and monetary policy is a little bit more complex. Um, and, and I don't want, you know, given that this is an intro and survey course, I don't want to bog you down too much, but monetary supply is another important role that states and political actors play in terms of setting out a set of institutions to govern the supply of money. Um, if we think of money like any other resource, um, supply and demand, if, if a lot, you know, if there's, if there's more money in circulation, its value will go down. If there's less money in circulation, the value will go up. By and large, right? That's not 100% the case, but that's the general idea. And monetary policy has a huge amount of impact on distributional issues. Um, 
And that's something that we would definitely dig into much more in um, states and markets. But for our purposes today, I think it's useful to just note that monetary policy and the, the politics around um, interest rates and the money supply have, again, huge political consequences in terms of distributional decisions. And similarly, we can say regulatory policy. And that's the laws and rules that govern how economic practices play out from everything governing safety, health practices, pollution, right, is obviously a big issue. Or in Japan, there's obviously been a lot of controversy around nuclear power, um, since, uh, especially in the wake of the um, uh, tragic 2011 earthquake um, that set off um, the issues in Fukushima with the reactor there. And so um, that's an issue of regulatory policy uh, in terms of safety, health, um, policies that govern the relationship between employees and employers is obviously connected to regulatory policy. And again, I don't think it's hard to imagine the huge political implications of this. Whatever one um, believes about it or thinks is the correct path, it has significant consequences in terms of the rights people have, um, the uh, you know the cleanliness of the air, or how much we want to you know think about a trade-off between pollution and and having a cleaner environment, or maybe some people say that we need to focus more on the economic growth aspect. And that's been um, something that's those kinds of questions have been central to the debate in Japan over nuclear energy um, that has taken place over the last decade or so. Um, all three of these are, are, are key kind of points of intersection between the state or political actors and private economic actors to the extent that they're separate. Um, that is another thing that can vary. We'll talk about that in a minute. And um, I'm going to go down if you're following in the notes uh, and just try what I'm going to do today is just try to outline very briefly um, these different paradigms of political economy, right? Um, briefly. Uh, and if you had additional questions, you're always free to contact me or we can meet in office hours. These are also discussed um, in the reading. And these are kind of paradigms are like big models, big theoretical schools, and there's a lot of variation within them. But um, there's a kind of several paradigms that I think are important to think about. Um, and these are kinds of ideas about how politics and economics interact. And one is, is a very classical one called, um, you know, it's often called state-centered or mercantilism. I note some, you know, notable thinkers in this camp uh, from history, Frederick Least and Alexander Hamilton. And basically this idea is that um, the state's interests and the national economy are one and the same, right? That um, that's not to say like a communism, like the state should control the economy, but it's saying that the economy should serve the, this, this view or this paradigm of political economy says that the economy, even if it's private, you know, a lot of the economic activity is private, ultimately the, the economy should serve the national interest. Um, and often this built around the idea of trying to um, maximize national wealth. Uh, there's also this notion of trade protection and subsidies and infant industry. These are some of the policies they would promote. And so mercantilists are going to often see the idea of that wealth coming into a country is good and wealth leaving a country is bad. So they would say that selling exports abroad is good, but buying imports from overseas is bad. Right, and that um, the goal of a national economy is to maximize the wealth within a state, and that is meant to provide uh, a, a mechanism for the state to be um, strong, secure, 
and and so forth, right? And so the, for them, the they the the key idea is that the economy and and the national interest are are not separate things, right? That the the national economy should be an extension of. So we talked about taxing and spending. So in this model, the state should use some of its tax funds to support industries that they think are strategically important, right? And rather than just letting market forces decide what industries flourish and what which ones do not, that if things are important, like say the state says, you know, military production is important of making missiles or weapons, then they should give money or technology. They should give money to those firms um, that are in those industries to develop and grow. <clears throat> and this is often described as kind of realist political economy, right? So we encountered realism uh, in our discussion of international relations theory uh, in, in the context of the international system um, weeks back, and this is considered kind of a realist variant of um, political economy that fo focuses on national security and that the, the, the national economy should be an extension of these national security interests. The next paradigm we're going to turn to is probably one that would be most familiar to you. Um, this has become the dominant kind of paradigm around the world. Um, that might be changing a little bit over the last decade or so. But by and large, this still remains the kind of central organizing paradigm for a lot of um, political and economic systems around the world, and that would be liberalism. And uh, as noted here, David Ricardo, John Stuart Mill, amongst many others. Um, but importantly, this shares, as, we talk to th have we, as we've talked throughout the course, liberalism is a massive um, set of political and, and also economic ideas um, that share a lot, though, and, and a lot of common um, assumptions. And, and here we can see it's based on this common liberal assumption of human nature and rationality. Um, and in this case, as opposed to, and liberalism in, in, you know, kind of historically emerged as a alternative or a challenger to mercantilism or state-centered um, political economy. And this idea favors really emphasizing a separation between um, the state and the market, right? That the state can play some background role, but in, in the liberal conception, um, the market and civil society should be the um, in, in some ways have some separation, um, some, some distinct zone outside of the state's purview, right? And that this is an area for um, people to pursue their own interests and their own economic goals um, outside of the state's interference. And we just had an excellent student presentation on different conceptions of liberty. And so this might sound very familiar to negative liberty, right? That the marketplace and economic sphere should be a place defined by negative liberty such that people are free to start businesses or work at different places and move around um, and do you know perform different economic activities at their will and this is a way to encourage um, personal autonomy and freedom by not having the state you know having a zone of private economic activity that is not heavily controlled or regulated by the state. Um, and this can be connected to these concepts of pluralism um, or utilitarianism, right? We talked about the pluralist model of democracy um, this week, right? And this is very much in line with that, that another idea is that this creates multiple 
areas of power and diffuses power by allowing actors to have um, and accumulate wealth and in individual um, resources outside of, again, a state-monitored or controlled system. Lastly, um, and this one, you know, has, uh, it, it still remains um, an, an important perspective, uh, perhaps not as important as it was during the Cold War um, with the Soviet Union. Uh, clearly, China is still technically a Marxist country, though it has adopted many liberal ideas. Um, in theory, it is still a Marxist um, political and economic system, as is North Korea, Cuba, Vietnam, Laos, a few a few other countries, but but not nearly as many as um, during the 60s, 70s, and even into the 1980s. And Marxists, though, outside of these you know examples of China or specific as as a theory, emerged from a critique of capitalism and liberalism. Right, so liberalism emerged as a critique to state-centered or mercantilism political economy, and Marxism emerged as a critique of liberalism and arguing that. The liberal conception of freedom in in the you know by having a um, uh, market system and in a, in a um, capitalist kind of market economy is actually ultimately a politically um, oppressive system that rests upon exploitation. Right. This is the Marxist critique of liberalism, and um, from this perspective, economic arrangements right that produce. They produce political outcomes in the form of a working class, the working class being subordinated to the owners of capital. So the, the, a big critique of Marxist political economy of liberalism is that th the relationship between employers and those that work for them are not neutral relationships. They're not free relationships. They're relationships rooted in what Marxists would call exploitation. Um, and therefore, um, economic justice can only emerge in a system where ownership of the means of production, which is a classic Marxist term, um, is held collectively for the benefit of all, right? And so this would be where, you know, um, some critique Marxism as being too idealistic. That's kind of up for you to decide. But the core idea is, again, um, what liberalism tries to present as a an area of diffuse power, of power being spread out, Marxism will say that even in this kind of theoretically free market system, um, it's rooted in power relationships, that it's political, that the relationship between a, an employer and an employee is a political relationship of unequal power, and that employers use that power to exploit workers. Right? That's, and obviously, there's many different strains of Marxism, right? All of these have huge, you know, state-centered realism. Um, liberalism and Marxism are broad paradigms that have many variations um, um, within them, right? But these are, are just some important ones. And I think that's a nice way to think about it. Um, mercantilism or state-centered um, approaches emerge um, as a kind of dominant idea of political economic organization. Liberalism emerges as a theoretical and organizational challenge to that um, around the late 18th and early 19th century. And then in the, in the, um, late 19th and early 20th century, Marxism emerges as a critique of liberalism. So we have here models of capitalist organization. And um, for the sake of keeping things uh, short here, um, I'm just going to go through very briefly. And these, are, again, are things that um, I would be happy to discuss with you more at length um, in you know office hours or after class or something. Um, and uh, I know I've said this several times, but I, I really like, you know, 
um, encouraging students who are, have an interest in political economy and questions like you know these big questions of how societies you know control and distribute resources and questions of of in, you know globalization and how countries interact um, economically and politically and in those kind of broader contexts um, to really consider taking uh, states and markets in the fall. Uh, so we have the neoliberal model, um, the social market model, and the state capitalist model. And we can see that there's some connections between them. I, I offer some detailed in the notes, there's some more detailed explanations of them. Um, so I'm going to leave it to you to kind of look into those and, and again, follow up with any questions you may have. Um, and um, there's a last section on the notes about nationalist reactions to economic globalization. Um, and certainly that is a question where we said liberalism has been the dominant form, but we can see in our discussion of the rise of millennial, so millennial socialism as, you know, Marxist kind of, you know, millennial socialists aren't Marxist, but a lot of their ideas are inspired by or connected to Marxist ideas about capitalism having this exploitative component. Um, but we also see reactions of the state-centered or mercantilist paradigm um, in people like Donald Trump or issues like Brexit, um, other leaders around the world saying that the you know national interest should come before everything else and that the economy, again, should be in the service of uh, protecting or creating a strong national economy um, and, and the focus should be internally rather than concerning about um, global or international issues. Right. So we can see that these paradigms are still very much in, in, in conversation, right? That liberalism is still the dominant paradigm, but the, the alternative approaches of state centered realism and, um, or state centered political economy, mercantilism or, um, uh, Marxist approaches that kind of feed into social democracy or millennial socialism, as you would call them, are still very, um, prominent and active challengers to, um, this dominant liberal paradigm and these nationalist reactions to economic globalization can be seen as one of the um, outcomes of that. And at the end, you can see this qu quotation from Donald Trump, um, who, uh, former president of the United States, who, you know, we will no longer surrender this country or its people to the false song of globalism. The nation state remains the true foundation for happiness and harmony, right? And so this is a clear idea of rejecting basic liberal ideas and asserting much more of a, you know, older and um, traditional uh, state-centered or mercantilist view. And a lot of Donald Trump's policies in some sense tried to implement or change um, what had been America, at least for the last 40 or 50 years, traditionally more liberal um, approach to political economic um, organization, both nationally and globally. Okay, so hopefully this has helped to flesh out some of these ideas. And if you wanted to include this in your um, reflection paper, which is due on Monday, um, you know, you, by all means, uh, hopefully this helps out. I'm sorry for getting this to you a little bit later than I had planned. Um, and I'm sorry if the recording's a bit rough. I, For the sake of speed, I'm not going to be editing this um, in the way that I normally do. Anyways, thanks so much. Thanks again for all of your hard work in the course. Have a great weekend. Best of luck with your essays for those who are writing them. And I look forward to seeing you in class on Monday. <laughs>